following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Today's sermon text comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. How we doing? Amen. 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 Let's get it. Let's get directly into it. So there was a question that was asked about suffering, and this, and you guys know that we are continuing in our series class and session with a very, very important subject this morning: the subject of suffering. One of the many Christians, uh, one of the many subjects and questions that Christians stumble over um, is this particular question. And it's, and it's one of the questions that many of you probably stumble over, which is why we received some of the requests that we received to address this particular question. How should the Christian view suffering? How should the Christian understand suffering? It's something that's very hard for us to process in, in this culture and in, in this geographical region of the world because we are in, in, um, in, enamored and inundated by success. And so the idea that there is a such thing as a Christian life that doesn't on the surface around the world or, or appear to others to be successful is something that we struggle with. We don't know how to process it. And then also when you couple that with just the culture around us as it relates to Christian preaching, if you turn on your TV most days, what you're going to find is some form of what is called prosperity gospel even if it isn't heavy-handed, it's going to be in some shape or form hinged around that. And that being, basically, if you just come to Jesus, everything's going to work. You need a house? Come to Jesus. You need a car? Come to Jesus. You need a million dollars? And I'm dead serious. Come to Jesus. You need a plane? Just say it. And so in that kind of culture, it becomes hard for us to even understand that there could be some, some purpose for suffering. One out of 12 Christians in the world suffer persecution annually. One out of 12. 
One out of 12 that believe Jesus, that trust Jesus by faith, that are walking with Christ, suffer persecution. One of the great manifestations of that kind of persecution and that kind of terrorism is found in, in Christian women around the world. Every single day, six women that profess Jesus Christ as Lord are either raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriages that they do not consent to. Despite what you see in the United States globally, the faith has always been assaulted from multiple sides, and yet it's thrived in spite of being assaulted. However, as we, as we discuss physical assault, I want you to think not just about physical assault as a persecution, because that is a persecution, but Satan releases his attacks in other ways as well, which, it, which in one of those ways is sickness and disease. The United Nations of, of Food and, and Agriculture um, estimates that, that about 815 million people out of the 7.6 billion people in the world, one out of every 10 roughly, suffer from chronic undernourishment. Chronic undernourishment. Even in this country, 42 million people suffer from hunger. In this country, 42 million people, according to Feeding America. According to one organization that tracks chronic diseases, more than 133 million Americans, or 45% of the population, have at least one chronic disease or one chronic condition. Those conditions include arthritis, asthma, cancer, cardiovascular or heart disease, depression, diabetes, and then several other chronic diseases fall under that, mental diseases and disorders. By show of hands, how many of you have a close friend or a close relative who is either suffering a chronic condition or has died from a chronic condition? Show of hands. So we all are acquainted with suffering. This is not strange to us. Suffering is a part of the human experience because sin is a part of the human experience. When sin entered the world, suffering followed right behind it. And they, and they are joined at the hip. Sin and suffering is joined at the hip, each guaranteed to be around as long as the other is. And the Christian is not exempt from, from being pricked with this type of suffering, with this pain of suffering. Suffering is not only part of the human experience. Suffering, believe it or not, is part of the Christian experience. Everyone that raised your hand earlier, raise them back up. Put them back up. Those of you with close friends or close family who is either suffering a chronic condition or has died from a chronic condition. Now, keep your hands up if any of those people that you are thinking about were Christian. So it's not just a part of the human experience. It's a part of the Christian experience. Regarding persecution, contrary to what some of us may believe, our bouts of suffering are not deficiencies of God's Spirit. Currently, some of the places where God's Spirit is moving most prominently in the world through His church is also some of the same places where persecution is at its greatest. Suffering is at its greatest. In the early church, the very first 300 years, 300, 300 plus years of the early church was filled with ups and downs of violent assault on the church, persecution on the church. And, all, and during all of that time, the Spirit of God was moving more powerfully than he had ever moved 
in human history. Regarding sickness, we see that Jesus had some of his strongest followers tested with the bout of sickness in their body. And they were tested when they were closest to him. One of those servants in particular is, uh, is the Apostle Paul, the gentleman who wrote most of the New Testament. He tells, a, he tells a story of his own life in 2 Corinthians, the second letter that we have on file that he wrote to Corinth, the church at Corinth. And he tells this story where he says in verse 1 of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I must go on boasting. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ. He's talking about himself, but he doesn't refer to himself. It's a method of humility that he's exercising. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. That means he was in heaven, the third heaven, the sky, the outer space, and then the place where God resides. And he says, whether in body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would, for I would be speaking the truth. And so he continues on and he says about this vision, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I received, that he received, a thorn was given me in the flesh. That means a physical infirmity. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. There's no absence of faith here. He goes to the Lord three times, and he asks the Lord every single time to remove this condition that he has been stricken with. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Notice that the condition that was given to him that he speaks of, the Lord would not take away despite his pleading with God. And despite the fact that he was close to God, so close that he was in heaven in a vision, able to see all the majestic things that no human being should ever see and be able to speak about, he saw it, and yet here he is sick in his body. God was telling him that my grace is plenty for your condition. And not only is it plenty for your condition, my grace is teaching you something in your condition. In other words, I'm doing something with this. He's doing something with yours. Sometimes you don't understand it, sometimes you don't get it, but he is doing something with yours. And it's that thought that we look at 1 Peter chapter 4 with. The fact that God is doing something. He is doing something with your suffering. We want to use this text to dive a little deeper into what God is doing in the midst of our sufferings, our persecution, and even our illnesses. When Peter recorded, when Peter wrote this letter, by the way, he was writing it to a church facing suffering. 
Out of the gate in the very first chapter of this letter, this, this first chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, in this you rejoice, though now, talking about when he says in this, he's talking about in the resurrection of Christ that is giving you new resurrected life and that you have now inherited eternal life as a result of it. He says, in this you are rejoicing. You are excited about salvation. You are rejoicing in the fact that you have eternal life. You are rejoicing in the fact that you've been found not guilty by God because Jesus Christ has erased your sin. You are rejoicing in the fact that you have an eternal home when all of this craziness in this world is done. You have an eternal home. In this you rejoice, though now, he continues, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He says, you're rejoicing, even though right now, you struggle because you are stricken with trials, tribulations, sufferings, persecutions. He comes back to this theme often in this letter, this idea of encouraging the church to continue on in the, in the face of suffering, encouraging the, the saints to stand in the midst of suffering. And that's when he gets to verse 12 of chapter 4 that you have, that we read this morning. He says, beloved, do not be surprised. Listen, listen to me. Listen to me. Do not be surprised at the fiery trials, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised. We learned several things in this passage that, that Matt read this morning. The first thing is that suffering should not surprise us. Persecution should not surprise us. Peter seems to be arguing against us remaining in a state that's, that suffering often can place us in, the kind of shock that it can give us, where it just leaves us paralyzed and, and, and unable to move sometimes. That sort of passive state of shock where you just basically just sit down overwhelmed by it. There's nothing you can do but just be still in the midst of it. That kind of shock where, you're, where you spend the majority of your time and your energy and your emotions and your efforts just simply asking, why in the world is this happening to me? Mike Tyson used to say that, Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. He's right. Everybody has a plan. Everybody, everybody can, can, we all, as we, as we think about how that relates to the true Christian life, we are all bold, we are all positive, we are all spirited, we are all active, we are all serving the Lord, and, and, and then, and then Satan jacks us in the mouth. And all of a sudden, everything that we were standing on kind of just goes up in smoke, and we don't know what to do. We just stand there dazed and shook by it. And folks, that's understandable. When he, when, he, when he punches you in the mouth and snatches your finances, when he punches you in the mouth and snatches your health, when he punches you in the mouth and, 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 and persecutes you physically, assaults you physically, that's understandable for you to be rocked by that. 
And to not know where to go and to not know what to say and to not know where, how to move. Joni Erickson Tata is one of the most amazing women ever to walk the face of the earth for Jesus. She talks about, she, she suffers from a condition that she suffered 50 years ago. She's a quadriplegic. She talks and she shares her story about how she first faced that condition in the summer of 1967. She and her sister Kathy went to the beach one day, just a regular normal day for young, young folks, and they planned on spending time in a raft, and, in, and, and, and Joni Erickson Tata took a dive into the raft that was just offshore, anchored back to the shore, not realizing that there was not enough depth, not enough depth in the water for her to dive. She dove, hit her head on a hard surface, and immediately heard her neck snap, and an electric shock went through her body. And as her sister came to pull her out of the raft, she noticed that her arm just dangled over her sister's shoulder, but she couldn't feel it anymore. And when she got to the doctor, she, she heard what she feared. She was paralyzed, severely paralyzed, and would be paralyzed for the rest of her life. This is how she describes that moment of getting punched in the mouth by Satan. Lying in the hospital, I recall that just months earlier, I had asked God to draw me closer to his side. Now, stuck in bed, I wondered if my paralysis was his idea of an answer to prayer. She continues, if this was the way he treated new Christians, how could he ever be trusted with another prayer again? For a long time, that idea both frightened and depressed me, but where else could I turn? To whom could I go? I remember praying, God, if I can't die, then show me how to live. Many days afterward, I would sit in front of a Bible holding a mouth stick between my teeth and flipping my pages, praying that God would help me put together the puzzle pieces of my suffering. And Jesus met her there. She describes one of the foundational texts that she found as she was working through this text with her, with her turner in her mouth, flipping pages. Psalm 79, verse 8, she says, states, May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. She continues, Basically, I wake up almost every morning in desperate need of Jesus. From those early days when I first got out of the hospital to over four decades, now five decades, in a wheelchair, it's still the same. The morning dawns, and I realize, Lord, I don't have the strength to go on. I have no resources. I can't do another day of quadriplegia, but I can do all things through you who strengthen me. So please give me your smile for the day. I need you urgently. She says, this I have found is the secret to my joy and my contentment. Every morning, my disability, and most recently, my battle with cancer forces me to come to the Lord Jesus in empty-handed spiritual poverty. But that's a good place to be because Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, end quote. This was a woman stunned by suffering as a new Christian, and yet by God's grace found her stride in the midst of it. She went from passive shock 
and spiritual paralysis to accompany her physical paralysis to actively living in God even in a paralyzed or paralyzed body. Peter declares to the Christian that facing persecution from the outside world or just simply from Satan himself, that you cannot and should not stay in shock because what is happening to you is not strange. It is expected. It is expected. How many of you used to hear your mother or your grandmother say, Satan sure is busy. That's the way my grandma would say it. More proper pronunciation, Satan sure is busy. And they were right. They were right. Peter acknowledges this in the very next chapter. In chapter 5, Peter says that Satan, he tells us to be sober and be vigilant, be watchful, because your, your adversary, the devil, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Satan comes as a lion through suffering. Peter acknowledges that. Satan is busy. Now keep something in mind. Satan roars like a lion, but he is not without a leash. He is not without a leash. He does not run unopposed. He does not run undeterred. He does not run unobstructed. Even he is operating somehow in some way within the mysterious divine will of God's power, of God. The story in the Bible that highlights this the most is Job. When we look in the Old Testament at the servant Job, Job is a blameless man who Satan seeks permission from God to tempt. And God grants him permission for the testing, for God's glory, and for Job's continued perfecting. And so Satan comes along and he begins to destroy all the family that Job has and all of his possessions he steals and all of his cattle he kills and all of his agriculture he destroys and all of his property he disrupts and destroys. And Job's response to that in chapter 1 is this. He arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now listen, here's the important part. The next verse says, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now listen. Satan was the one doing the chaos or performing the chaos. Job said, what? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And the Bible says that Job did not sin and that he, he did not speak wrongly when he said what he said. What does that mean? That means that there is something, to, there is an order in our suffering. God is not the author of our suffering, but God is allowing it somehow for glory and for your perfecting. For glory, his glory, and for your perfecting. And so he allows it. He knows, he knows exactly how much to allow. 
And he allows it for his glory and for your perfecting. One theologian captures these roles in suffering this way. Satan causes Job suffering. Satan, or more, proper, or more properly, the Satan, this is, a more, this is more of a title than a name because it means adversary, is a supernatural creature who has a strange place in the council in the cabinet of the sons of God or the angels. He is utterly evil, he is utterly malicious, and yet he has a job to do. It is his hand that actively strikes Job. So in a sense, he causes them. But as we see, if we read the book carefully, he is not the ultimate cause. Satan is prowling constantly looking for a faith to destroy, looking for a faith to snuff out, looking at you, asking God, can I test her? Can I test him? Can I do this? Can I do that? He is not operating without a leash, however. And so he says, Peter says, that these texts, these trials, should not surprise you. You got an enemy out there that's constantly looking for it, looking to test you. But you have a God who is using it for something. He's doing something with it. And so how does Peter tell us we should respond to that? He says we should rejoice. Come again, huh? What'd you say? <laughs> What'd you say, Peter? Let's look at verse 13 together. He says, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Bad reception, couldn't hear you. you know, what, what, what'd you say, Peter? Repeat that. Rejoice. Rejoice. Peter is speaking with a suffering audience and speaking as one who, too, is acquainted with suffering. He is not unacquainted with suffering. He is very familiar with it, as he highlights in this, chapter, in this uh, letter as well elsewhere. But he encourages his beloved Christian brothers and sisters to not simply just passively endure suffering, not to just simply bear with it and get through it, but instead Peter is calling for a more supernatural response in the face of suffering, and that is to rejoice in suffering. But why? Why do you rejoice in suffering? That's what the rest of the text is about. Number one, you rejoice in suffering because it's an opportunity for you to share in Christ's suffering. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You have an opportunity to have fellowship with Jesus as you suffer for Jesus. I was told by my father and, and, and my sister that the closest times that they've had with God was in the midst of their infirmities, in the midst of their conditions, in the midst of their, their struggles. I was told by my father that, that he had never felt closer to God than in those moments. It's hard to process. I 
You continue, you continue in this verse in verse 14. It says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The suffering in Christ is a sign that you belong to Christ. The suffering in Christ is a sign that you will be with Christ when this is all said and done. When you are reviled because you walk with Christ, when you are slandered because you walk with Christ, when you are assaulted because you walk with Christ, when Satan is allowed to test you because you walk with Christ, it is a demonstration that you are not only walking with Christ, but it is a demonstration that the spirit of Christ is on you, rests upon you. How is God sharing fellowship with us? How is God driving us closer in these moments? Ms. Tata helps us again in this quote. She says, our, our brave quadriplegic sister says in, in this quote, I'm mindful that the only way Christ can fully live in me, listen, is if I die to myself. Normal Christian living is dying daily with Jesus. In order to rise and live with him, we must die. This is what I mean when I say that every day I am dying to know the Lord. As I put to death fear and doubt and anxiety and anger and pride and jealousy, as I die to wanting things my way and keeping a record of other people's wrongs or cherishing inflated ideals of my own importance, as I die to those sins, I am free to live fully and happily in Christ. And most often it is hardship and suffering that forces us to do this. Left to our own devices, she continues, our natural inclination, our natural bend would be to stay fearful, to stay doubtful, to stay anxious, to stay angry, to stay proud, to stay jealous. But suffering has a way of, drown, of driving us down the difficult road to Calvary. And so what do you know? God permits what he hates, your pain to accomplish that which he loves, a fuller, richer life in Jesus, end quote. God is doing something with your pain. He does not waste your tears. He does not waste your heartache. Verse 15 says, however, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a, or as a meddler. And it continues, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory in Lord, let him glorify God in that name. And so Christianity, persecution in Christianity is not simply just whatever persecution you receive is automatically a demonstration that, that God is pleased with you. And I need you to understand that. Because America, we tend to be kind of notorious for seeing all of our persecution as persecution that is rightfully given to us. Now, there's a popular kind of far-right conservative, you know, um, spokesman or radio guy or video guy, YouTube guy that's out there right now. And he slandered the parents of Sandy Hook, that school, that's, that elementary school where kids, were, where, where a murderer walked in, shot, killed a myriad, a host of kids, a host of children. He said all those parents were crisis actors and the thing never happened and, and, you know, said all kinds of just harmful and hateful things about that. And Facebook banned him. 
He came out maybe a week or so ago, griping and complaining, talking about how they're, you know, they're shutting, they're shutting down. They're, they're persecuting me. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're cutting off my voice to the public because of the truth. No, because you're an idiot. That's why. And yeah, I said it. You seize the moment, you seize the tears of parents. You mock them by calling them crisis actors. Somebody bans you, I don't care. It's not persecution. That's not persecution for Jesus. Do you understand that? See, here's what I need you to understand about persecution, all right? If the persecution comes, let it come because they have problems with Jesus, not because they have problems with you. Does that make sense? If somebody, if somebody pops you in the face because you were being a jerk as you shared truth, then don't come running and telling us that you were persecuted. That's not called persecution. That's called get right. That's called getting some act right. You got popped in the mouth because you're a jerk. You didn't get popped in the mouth because you were standing for Christ. And this is what, this is what Peter's point is, is that when you talk about persecution. Don't let it be persecution as a meddler. Don't let it be persecution as a thief. Don't let it be persecution as a murderer. Don't let it be persecution as a gossiper. Don't let it be persecution as one who backbites or one who hates or one who steals. Don't let it be persecution uh, as, a result of, as a result of you using and seizing, uh, seizing the opportunity to use people for your own selfish gain. That's not persecution. That's discipline. That's correction. Instead, he says, if you are walking with Jesus and you face persecution, and you're serving the Lord, and yet Satan is attacking your body, he says rejoice, because it means God is there. He's present. He's with you. He's walking with you. And it means that his spirit rests mightily on you. It's precisely because the Spirit of God was on Job that Satan saw the need to attack him. Are you tracking with me? He says also that there is a time for judgment to begin at the household of God in verse 17. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the, of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, he's saying, listen, another reason to rejoice is because the persecution you're facing cannot compare to the suffering to come for those that don't, do not walk with Jesus and do not know Jesus. He says, rejoice. Rejoice because your perfecting is happening now. Your, your sanctification is ongoing. He is pruning you and shaping you and molding you into the, into the man or the woman that he has called you and destined for you to be. Rejoice because there is coming a suffering that is far greater and far worse and there has no end. And that is the suffering that comes after this life. It says rejoice because your suffering is happening now and it cannot compare to what's coming. Lastly, why don't we rejoice? We rejoice because this is not the end of the story. We rejoice because this is not the end of the story. 
He says, therefore, lastly, in verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Those are, those are important words for us to cling to. Peter is making this very abnormal request, if you think about it. Doesn't make sense on the surface if you're just trying to process it through human, uh, human lenses, natural lenses. Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, however, is, is entirely aware of what he's asking you to do. He's asking you to entrust your eternal soul to the one who, for reasons outside of our immediate comprehension, is permitting your suffering. He's asking you to entrust your soul to the one for whom, for, I mean, for reasons that we cannot quite articulate is allowing your pain and your persecution for his name's sake. He's asking you to entrust your soul to that one. He's asking you to entrust everything you have to that one, to entrust your eternity to that one. How can we carry that kind of confidence in God? How can we carry the kind of confidence in God required to entrust our souls to him even as we suffer for him? In other words, like Ms. Tata said earlier, how can I trust my prayers with this God? There's several reasons. One, he says that you must entrust your souls to the one, to, the, to a faithful creator while doing good whom you are suffering for according to his will. In other words, God's design allows room for your suffering. We've talked about Joseph a number of times, but Joseph is an Old Testament character who suffers. But then at the end, when God brings him to the place that he had, already, had always destined for him, Joseph understood the purpose of his suffering. He tells all the people that were responsible for that suffering that those things that you meant for evil, God meant for my good. And that through this, many, many people are being saved, rescued, delivered. How many people will see you walk rejoicing in God through your suffering and it be used to transform their lives? God has a purpose in what's happening in you. So that's one reason why you can entrust your soul to him. But also you can entrust your soul to him because he's not just a creator. He is a faithful creator. In other words, God's faithfulness ensures that your suffering will not be wasted. He's faithful. That which he sets out to do, he will do. That which he, set, that which he promises to accomplish, he will accomplish. So you can entrust your soul to him because he is faithful. He's not one to abuse your suffering. But you can also entrust your soul because not only is he a faithful creator, but he is a creator. In other words, he carries the power to see it through. Whatever plans that he has for you, he carries the power to see it through to the end. So it would be one thing for you to have someone who's faithful but not powerful, right? 
because they would be like, well, I tried, <laughs> you know, sorry, I mean, I tried the best I could, couldn't get, couldn't get you to the end, though. But no, not only do you have one that is faithful, but you have one that is powerful. He created you, and not only, did, not only does that mean he's powerful over your life, but he is also knowledgeable of your life. He created you, and so he knows the road that is necessary to get you to the end even if you don't understand that he does because he created you. Lastly, why do we do it? Why do we entrust our souls to him? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Peter says earlier in this same letter, he says this about Jesus. For to this you have been called to suffer because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting. Listen, entrusting, the same words that he gave us, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So he says, entrust your soul to the one who is faithful, because the one who died for you entrusted himself to the Father as well. Jesus not only shows us that God cares about our suffering enough to suffer with us, but Jesus shows us that God has beautiful promises in our suffering by suffering for us. He cares enough for your sorrow that he himself becomes man and embraces your sorrow. He's not distant from your sorrow. He's present. He knows it. He's sacrificed in order to experience it. So he's well acquainted with it, as Hebrews chapter 4 tells us. But he also, not only, did he, not only did he show himself loving and compassionate by suffering with you, but he showed that God has beautiful plans in our suffering by suffering for you. Because it was in suffering that you were brought to him. It was in suffering that you received eternal life. It was in suffering that you were made whole. It was in suffering that peace came, that joy came, that the divine promises came, that the inheritance came, that adoption into God's family came through suffering. All those things came through suffering. And so he leaves you an example to show that, guess what? Even though suffering is hard, it's painful, listen, I know, I know, I know. And yet he can do divine things with it. He can do marvelous things with it. He can do powerful things with it, things that are beyond our wildest dreams. And not only can he do it, but he will. He will if you continue in and you entrust your soul to this faithful creator and you continue working as you are even in the midst of your suffering. Saints, in your sufferings, you may be in need of help, but you are in no way helpless. Christ has showed us the way while he suffered. 
He showed mercy. While he suffered on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While he suffered, he evangelized. There were thieves on the cross next to him, and he spoke to one, and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. While he suffered, he cared for the lowly. His mother, who was grieving because of his absence, he looked out to his other, uh, other disciple, and he said, John, take care of my mom while he suffered. And so the thing about it is that just because you are in the midst of suffering does not mean that the work has ceased. God can empower you and use you to even live life on mission even as you are struggling through your condition, even as, you, even as you're being persecuted, mocked, and scorned, which is why Peter leaves us with those words, to entrust yourself and your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. This is how the Christians should view suffering. Don't be surprised by it. When it comes, absorb the blow by God's grace and then rejoice at the opportunity that you were counted worthy to suffer for his sake. And then continue to entrust yourself to the one who is working all things for his glory and for our eternal joy and good. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you and appreciate you for the opportunity to hear from your word. We ask, Lord God, that you would bless it, bless those that heard it. Allow us, Lord God, the strength to continue on even as we face whatever it is that we're facing. We're all facing something, Lord. And there are times, there are cycles in this, this, this thing, it seems. There are seasons in this. And so some of us may not be in the midst of a trial. But we certainly are preparing for one. Some of us are coming out of one. But Father, wherever we are, whether we're in it, whether we're um, out of it, preparing to go in it, or, where we're ju- or whether we're just coming out, Lord, would you be with us? Would you strengthen us? Would you show us by your spirit? that you are with us and have, and, and, and have a purpose for it. And may we continue to entrust ourselves by faith and repentance to you through your son, Jesus Christ. For he gave us the perfect example through his own suffering that brought us life. These things we ask and pray in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.